Tonight's reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 28. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live again and fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage of, to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. Not only so, but ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Well, this evening we're continuing our series looking at the work and person of the Holy Spirit. And we're looking at this passage, Romans chapter 8, 14 to 28, that Hazel read for us a moment ago. And what I want to do this evening is unpack four tensions and there are four tensions that re resolve around this particular word, hope, and the hope that we have as Christians, the hope that we have as followers of Christ. Archbishop Desmond Tutu was one of the strongest campaigners against apartheid in South Africa, that horrendous evil regime that separated um, people by what race they were, whether they were black or white. And he was once asked, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future and he replied with these words he smiled he always does all the time and he said this i am neither an optimist nor a pessimist but i'm a christian and i'm hopeful and that's very different i'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist but i'm a christian and i'm hopeful and that's very different the one thing that you and i have if we're christians is hope and it's very different to being an optimist. And it's certainly very different to being a pessimist. Hope gives strength. Hope makes you get out of bed in the morning. Hope can enable you to endure really hard times and tough times and, and sometimes real suffering and pain. In a world which, where we're surrounded by cynicism and despair and pain and suffering, tragedy, doubt and hopelessness, you and I are called to be people of hope. If there is one thing that should characterize the church, 
it is that we are, we should be, people of hope. And the reason that you and I can be people of hope is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We know hope, we experience hope, we can trust in hope because of the work of the Holy Spirit in you and in me. Remember about 20 years ago talking to uh, Michael Bourne, who is a bishop, he was the Bishop of Chester, and he told a story about um, attending the debates in the House of Lords, and one particular debate was particularly depressing. It, it went on late into the night, and he was leaving the House of Lords, and as he just as he was leaving the House of Lords, he met another member of the House of Lords who just looked at him, shook his head, and went, oh, it's hopeless, hopeless. And Michael Bourne said something deep within him stirred. And he looked at him, and Michael was, was quite tall when he was younger, and he said, it is never hopeless. And they prayed in the lobby of the House of Lords and went back into the debating chamber, and things just changed because they went in with hope, because they went in with faith. It's a bit like what they say about the Irish rugby team. Things may get desperate, but never serious. We always have hope as Christians. No matter how bad things may seem, no matter how bad things may get, you and I have hope. The context of these verses that Paul was writing uh, when he was in prison from a prison cell in Rome was to the early church who were about to endure perhaps the greatest wave of persecution that the church has ever seen. Thousands of Christians were killed as the Emperor Nero used them as, a, as a, just a, the butt of everything that was going wrong in the Roman Empire. Horrendous stories where he would take Christians and have them hung up in the trees in his garden, doused in oil, and then set fire just so he could walk through his garden at night time. His garden was lit by the bodies of burning Christians. Paul is writing to that church in this letter. They're about to endure incredible pain, incredible suffering, incredible persecution. They're going to be tempted several times. Is it really worth being a Christian? Is it really worth carrying on following this Jesus Christ? And that's why Paul says to them, you need to know hope. And he identifies these tensions. The reality is that you and I, if we're Christians, live in tension. And it happens as soon as we become a Christian, as soon as we make the decision to follow Christ, something happens. The Bible says that we cross over from darkness to light, from death to life. And we suddenly find ourselves in a situation where we're living in the world, but we're no longer of the world. Peter describes us as living as foreigners and exiles in this world. The Apostle Paul elsewhere describes Christians as citizens of heaven, not actually citizens of where we live. Our primary place of identity, the place where we live, isn't Edinburgh. It isn't Scotland. Our primary identity is neither Scottish nor British or American or Canadian. Our primary identity, if we're Christians, is that we are now citizens of heaven. We have different values, different priorities, and different ambitions because God's kingdom is where we belong. And you and I are called out to live in God's kingdom here and now to be in the world but not of the world. 
And because of those different values, priorities, and ambitions, there are these four tensions that we see in this passage that Hazel read for us a few moments ago. Tension in us, tension in creation, tension in prayer, and finally, tension that actually reflects the Godhead, the Trinity itself. This is big stuff. So firstly, the tension in us. If you've got a Bible, um, either on your phone or a real-life one, um, the reason I've discovered the reason preachers have very large Bibles is because their eyesight's going. Uh, and that's why they have really big Bibles. It's not because they're particularly holy, it's because they're blind. Um, and they're too vain to wear glasses up here. So they have big um, Bibles. Um, but in verse 14 to 17, Paul writes this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering. Paul describes what happens when you become a Christian. There's a fundamental change. Fear, he says, verse 15, gives way to freedom. And we become God's children. We become members of God's family. We can call God Abba, Father, Daddy. It's an intimate word, the Aramaic uh, word for Father, for Daddy, this Abba. It's, it's a unique term that Jesus used when he prayed. No other Jew would have dared to pray to God, Abba, Daddy. God was too big. God was too holy. God was too special to talk about God in those terms. But Jesus called him Abba. And what Paul is saying is that if the Spirit of God is, is in us, then we know that we're God's children. And we know that we're God's children because the Spirit of God is living in us, and that enables us to... the whole thing gone down. No, we're back. Okay, great. Um, so good, we'll just do that. It's very complicated. Um, so, we can call God Father. Now, before the start of Romans chapter 8, Paul says that we were slaves to three things. We were slaves to the law, we were slaves to sin, and we were slaves to fear. Now Paul says, because we've become God's children, then we can call God Father, Abba. And something has fundamentally changed in our relationship with God. Um, I think I mentioned before that my daughter, Iona, uses a special name for me when she wants to get something off me. Uh, when she wants a lift, when she wants some um, money for something, she'll call me Pappy. Um, now, that's a word that she can use because she's my daughter. Ali Baird, uh, who's a medical student, has tried for the last year, since I mentioned that in a student, to call me Pappy as well. <laughs> it doesn't work for him because he's not my child. <laughs> Jesus used that term because he's God's son. 
And Paul here says we can use that term about God because we are the sons and daughters of God. We can call God Abba, Daddy, because we are God's children. But there's a kicker. Right at the end, if you pick up that, that twist that comes in verse 17, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering. This belonging to God's kingdom, this belonging to God's family, brings incredible intimacy and privilege, but it also brings responsibility. Because along with the intimacy in of being co-heirs with Christ, brings the reality that we need to share in the sufferings of Christ. That just as the world hated Christ, if we're living a fully Christian, Christ-like life, we're living a life that's going against the flow of our culture and our society, then the world may well hate us as well. Remember again the situation that Paul was writing to. Just years, just months before the Emperor Nero would unleash this incredible persecution against the early church. There is joy, he says, but there is sadness too because we live differently to our culture, our society and our world and it's painful and that produces a tension within us. But it's not just a tension in us, the secondly, a tension in creation, verses 18 to 22. Paul says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that be, will be revealed in us. For the creation itself waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So in this life there is pain, but part of that pain is knowing that this world is not all that there is. That we live in a world where there is pain and suffering and poverty and slavery and despair and tragedy and incredible injustice. But we know that that is not how the world once was. And that is not how the world was meant to be. And the paradox is, is that some of the people's, Christians' deepest experiences of the Holy Spirit have actually come through deep pain and deep suffering. Francis Chan, who's written a book called The Forgotten God, tells a story in that book of an amazing meeting where he met with one of 23 South Korean missionaries who were held hostage by the Taliban in Afghanistan in 2007. Two of them, sadly, were killed, and the rest eventually were released when a deal was done between the South Korean government and the Taliban. All the 21 who were left behind, all of them had agreed to die for their faith. All of them had one Bible between them and they divided the Bible up into 23 separate sections so that when they were separated by the Taliban, they would each have a part of scripture to take with them to read. They all agreed that they were willing to die for their faith and two of them, sadly, that was their fate. When Francis Chan met one of these 23 missionaries, he was struck by one thing. 
This missionary said that since they'd been released, since they'd returned back to South Korea, since they had had time to reflect on their experience of being held hostage by the Taliban and what it had been like during those few days, several of them had approached each other and said the most amazing thing. Faced with certain death, faced with not knowing what was about to happen to them, faced with being martyred for their faith and now being released and back in South Korea, one after the other had come and talked with one of the others and said this, don't you wish that we were still there? And Chan said to them, why? And one after another recounted the deep, deep intimacy with God that they had experienced during their captivity. And they said, we know it was horrendous, we know it was deeply, deeply terrifying, but in a strange, perverse way, we'd almost like to go back because God was so close and so real and his presence amongst us was so tangible that we'd almost be willing to go back into that situation if we could sense again how close God was to us in those prison cells. We know that there is more. We know that even in the face of suffering and pain, there is more. And the paradox is that that tension produces an incredible intimacy often, not always, but often of God, who draws close to us. The Spirit himself tells us that we have a vision of a world of peace and love and joy and beauty because that's how it was in the first place. Because the Spirit of God was there in the first place. It's one of the first descriptions of the Holy Spirit where he's pictured brooding over the waters of creation. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters of creation. So one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in us is to reveal to us, to remind us how things once were. Before the fall, before humanity's rebellion and, and separation from God, before creation itself was affected by this dislocation in the relationship between God and humanity and, and God and creation itself, the Spirit who was there when creation itself was begun, the Spirit reveals to us how things once were and how things once will be when things are restored, when Jesus comes again. Paul describes it as that same spirit that lives in us, that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 8 verse 11, working through creation, with creation itself groaning with frustration. Waiting, verse 19, with eager expectation. One translation has creation standing on tiptoe, looking for the children of God to be revealed. Groaning, if you like, in childbirth. Childbirth is, is very painful. It was for me. My hand really hurt during all three of Kathy's labor. Childbirth is painful. What the Apostle Paul describes here is thousands and thousands and thousands of years of labor. 
where the whole of creation is groaning, waiting for the children of God to be revealed, waiting for you and I to be revealed, waiting for you and I to be redeemed. The spirit who, in the words of Bishop Graham Tomlin, transformed creation from something that was simply utilitarian and functional into something beautiful. Ever thought about that? There was no reason for God to create the world in the way that he did. There was no reason for God to create beauty in the way that he has other than to reflect who he is. God could have created a perfectly sterile, perfectly acceptable environment for you and I to live in as human beings. But imagine the creator God going, oh, Norway. We're going to have fun with that. What about the Great Glen? What about Australia? Okay, most of it's just nothing. Um, but the rest of it was fun. Australia wasn't fun. But the rest of it was amazing drawing the, the outline of Norway and Sweden, getting the hills and the mountains, setting geography up in such a way that it's just incredible that it takes the breath away because it reflects the character of God himself. There's a tension in creation. It's so beautiful. It's so awe-inspiring. But also it's fallen because it's incredibly powerful and it can bring about death and tragedy and pain. So there's a tension in us, there's a tension in creation, and then thirdly, verses 23 to 25, that then comes out in a tension in prayer. What we see is a tension when we pray. It's not just there in what we see around us, it's not just there inside us, but even as we get glimpses of the kingdom of God, of healing, of wholeness, of justice, of peace, Paul says that when we groan inwardly, verse 23, as we await the redemption of our bodies, we pray with groans. And these are prayers perhaps that are sighed rather than said. Maybe you've seen something and you haven't known how to pray. You're faced with a horrendous situation at work or in your family situation or a friendship or a relationship. Or you look at something on the news, something, um, something horrendous, maybe a tsunami or an earthquake. And you see devastation on a massive scale and you think, how can I pray? Well, it's one of those feelings as you stand in front of a television set or as you read your newspaper or you look online and you just think... God, what's going on? And something wells up inside of you. That's what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 8. This groaning, wordless groans, groaning inwardly, verse 23. As we see the tension between what is and what is to come. What was and what could have been and the world that we see around us. And that tension comes out in the way in which we pray. So when we don't know what to pray, we just go, ugh. And it's just a, we don't know what, ugh. That's prayer. That's prayer, Paul says. Wordless groans. Because that tension is there in us, it's there in creation. It's there in our prayer. Because that tension 
that you and I live with is actually in the Trinity itself. Verses 26 and 28. In the same way, Paul says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. You see, not only do we not know how to pray, Not only sometimes can we not put our prayers into words, sometimes the Godhead itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, words run out for God as well. And the Spirit is pictured interceding for us, interceding for the world, interceding for humanity, praying for us, but through wordless groans. Verse 26. When Jesus is told that Lazarus, his friend, is dead, we're told Jesus, once more deeply moved in spirit, goes to Lazarus's graveside. And that, that phrase, deeply moved in spirit, actually isn't a It's not a really good translation of what the full sense of what was happening in Jesus. That the word literally means, in the Greek, he snorted. He snorted like a horse. You see, something is happening deep within the spirit of Jesus. He's so angry, he's so disturbed at death itself and what death has done to his friend Lazarus. Even though he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he's about to resuscitate Lazarus, there's something deep within the Godhead itself that Jesus is so deeply moved in spirit, deep within his inner being, that he snorts. It's a wordless groan of a prayer. And what Paul is saying here is, if you find yourself in that situation where you just don't know what to pray, where words run out, where even praying in tongues or praying silently just doesn't cut it, then you can just groan in prayer. And that's okay because God himself does that. The Spirit himself does that. He intercedes with groans too deep for words. It's incredibly profound but incredibly reassuring that the Tension that you and I live in all the time because of the world that we find ourselves is a tension that is reflected at the very heart of God himself. This world is not how it was meant to be. This world is not how it once was. This world is not how it was made to be. This world is not how it will be in the future. Until then we live in the now and the not yet. And we live in that tension and we pray in that tension. But that tension is reflected in the Godhead itself. And so Paul says, we keep going. We know that in all things God works for the good, verse 28, of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. And we know that God works for the good of those who love him. Paul says, those who are children of God are led by the Spirit of God, never driven 
The Spirit of God never compels or forces people to do things. The Spirit never drives people to do things. Remember the Holy Spirit is gentle and kind, patient and loving, because that's who God is. The Holy Spirit is gentle. He leads people. He invites us. And he enables us to keep on praying. He enables us to keep on living. He enables us to keep on living, no matter how bad things may seem, and no matter how bad things may get. Whether it's persecution, as this early church was about to face, or whether it's in the face of deep cruelty, deep injustice, deep poverty, deep pain, deep tragedy, or even outright sin, even when it seems hopeless, Paul says, keep living as children of God. Paul says, keep praying as children of God. Paul says, keep living in that tension. Keep praying in that tension because one day the kingdom will be realized. And until that time, you and I and the whole of creation and the Trinity itself are groaning with frustration between the now and the not yet. Or as T.S. Eliot puts it in The Rock, the church disowned the tower overthrown, the bell upturned. What have we to do but stand with empty hands and palm turned upwards in an age which advances progressively backwards? All we can do is pray. All we can do is live distinctive, different, spirit-filled lives that show and reveal that we belong to a different kingdom. Those who are led by the Spirit, Paul says, are the children of God and they pray differently and they think differently and they live differently because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and is at work in me.